Well, good morning again. Before we begin in our study of Nehemiah this morning, I have an announcement to make uh, on behalf of the Elder Board and our staff. Many of you know that we've been praying about the future direction of our church for some time. If you were to open the look at the front cover of your bulletin, your program this morning, you'd see a slightly revised purpose statement that we exist to glorify Christ, to glorify Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. And we've been discussing and praying for some time about how to turn that into action, about what to do. And I'm happy this morning to uh, be asked to announce a first uh, radical step along that progress. Over the course of the last 12 months, we've been in discussions with a group of people known as Open Air. Uh, They can best be described as a small church in inner-city Houston, about 40 of them, not too big. They meet, but not in an air-conditioned building like ours, but they meet under the Pierce Elevated Freeway near the intersection of I-45 and uh, Smith Street. And they have been reaching out to the poor, the uh, homeless people in that area. Many of you have been involved in such ministries. Uh, On occasion, we've gone down there. I've done it myself, and spoken to them, delivered food, clothing, time of need. Open Air operates with a different philosophy. Rather than driving in from the suburbs, they've decided to actually live in that community. And so they've got about 40 people down there now who live in the inner city. The philosophy is simply that by living near them and by them, they can more effectively communicate the gospel to them. They more effectively meet their needs. They can develop relationships that extend from day to day, not just Sunday to Sunday. So far, they've had some pretty good progress. They've led a number of people to Christ. Uh, Many of those have become involved in their ministry also, and they continue to reach into the community to do so. But they believe that their ministry could be much more effective if it were able to reach a critical mass. And by that, they think they need to at least double their size. And in our discussions with them, uh, we've decided that we could participate in that in a major way. So after much discussion and prayer, the elders have decided to partner with Open Air and plant an inner-city church, much along the lines and much along the vision that I just described to you. And what I'd like you to do this morning is to consider joining in this. Now, we recognize that what I'm about to say is a big ask. It's not a small commitment that we're playing before you today. What we want is we want 40 TBC families to move downtown and become actively involved in this church. We want you to sell your houses, move downtown, minister to street people, the homeless, the poor, the needy, to live in that community and extend this ministry. Eventually, we will consider building something with a more permanent structure, not like this, something more fit for purpose, something more welcoming to uh, homeless people and street people. I can say that after much prayer and consideration that two of the elders, two of our staff, and two of our deacons have already committed to doing so. And so we need 34 TBC families to step up and join us. 
we've decided that we're initially we'll take volunteers. And if we don't get enough volunteers, we'll take secondary steps to convince or to persuade others to join. And if that fails, we'll have an open lottery. Now, I want to pause for just a second and ask you, what is it that's going through your head right now? Those of you who are giggling need to stop. What's going through your head right now? What's going through your head and your heart as you listen to what I just said? Some of you will be thinking, yes, I, I, I could do this. I could get excited about a ministry like this. I need some more details. I want other people to join me, but I could get excited about this. Others of you are thinking, wow, that's a surprise. It's a serious commitment. It's a big thing to ask. I'll have to give it some serious thought. I'm, I'm not sure if I could do that. It's a big commitment. Some of you are saying, wow, that's a serious commitment. It's a big ask. I wonder if anyone will go along with that. I'm not ready to go. I'll need to think about it real hard. Some of you are thinking, is he serious? Is this just another one of Hattenberger's jokes? He's just doing this to make a point. Some of you are thinking, who does this guy think he is? Placing upon my life that kind of commitment. I didn't sign up for that. I'm not going along with anything the elders say. I'm not in. And some of you, at least a few of you, are thinking, how fast can I get to the exit door without knocking anybody over? Now, I could ask you to raise your hands and let me know how you're thinking on that. But what I want you to do is just hold that thought seriously for just a moment, and we'll come back to it. What I want you to do now is open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in chapter 11, but I want to give a quick review of where we are. Nehemiah, as you all remember, he was uh, in Susa working for the king. He heard from his brothers that the walls, in fact, the whole city of Jerusalem had been devastated, but it had been, the walls had been knocked down for many years, 140 years before. And so what did Nehemiah do? Well, he got permission from the king, and Nehemiah moved his household from Susa all the way to Jerusalem for the purpose of rebuilding the walls. He encountered opposition along the way, both internal and external, but after 52 days of working alongside the people in Jerusalem, they were able to rebuild the wall, and that's in the middle of chapter 6. And then the wall was finished, and Nehemiah and the leaders had the more difficult job of rebuilding the people. The people had neglected God for many years. So now that the wall is up, they focused on the people. And so in chapter 8, they gathered at the water gate. It says that there were 50,000 people. How many of them showed up at the water gate is not clear, but a lot. And so Ezra read the book of the law from the early morning all the way through noon. People in the square. It's a long service. People worshipped, they wept, they were brokenhearted because they had ignored the law. They ignored God for such a long time. And then they built booths, and for seven days they rejoiced, and they feasted, and they prayed, and then they read the law some more, and they confessed their sins. And then Nehemiah led them in prayer, and they prayed very specifically around areas that they had fallen short, and they did a, took a covenant. They made a covenant with a curse and an oath. A curse if they failed to do it and an oath to do it. To obey God's law and to seek 
after God. So we get ourselves to Nehemiah chapter 11, and where are we from a 30,000-foot view? Chapter 11, you've got a temple that has been rebuilt that took place in the book of Ezra. So the temple has been rebuilt. The walls of the city are now up, thanks to Nehemiah and his friends. There's a revival going on in the hearts of the people. But the city itself, the city of Jerusalem, is empty. The walls are up, but there's nobody living inside. And if you open your Bibles uh, quickly to Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4, you'll see what I'm talking about. It says, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. The city itself was essentially empty. No one was living there. So where were the 50,000 people living? Well, we picked that up in verse 73 of chapter 7, where it says, So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And by their towns, it's referring to the cities, or the towns and the villages outside the city of Jerusalem. And there's a long laundry list of those later in chapter 11. They were living outside the city. Well, why? Well, several good reasons. One, there were no houses in the city. In 586 B.C., when the city was destroyed and the walls were destroyed, the entire city was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. All the houses were demolished. And so when the people moved back to the city after the Babylonian captivity, there weren't any houses to move into. Secondly, when they came back from captivity, the city was unprotected. They didn't have a wall. And so living in a city without a city wall is a dangerous thing to do, and so people didn't live there. The third thing is, was the whole city was a heap of ruins. You may remember back in one of the earlier chapters when Nehemiah first did his scouting tour at night, he got on a horse and he rode around the city, and it said in one spot he couldn't get his horse through. There was just too much rubble. And as the people were rebuilding the wall, one of the difficulties they had was just disposing and working around all the rubble. You destroy a city, you leave a gigantic mess. And so moving into that and building a house there is a major construction project, first to clear this the way and then to build a house. And so they didn't build them. And then finally, there were houses outside the city. The Israelites who had been living in the city, as well as those who had been living in the surrounding uh, villages and towns, had been deported to Babylon. But they hadn't destroyed the, the, the houses outside in the little towns. And so when they came back from captivity, there were no houses inside Jerusalem, but there were plenty of houses in the surrounding towns and villages. And so that's why they were living there. And this was not a temporary situation. This wasn't simply that, oh, we're going to stay and live in here for a little while and figure out what happens in the city of Jerusalem. No, they've been living there for 90 years in the towns and villages outside Jerusalem. It had been, by this time, it had been 90 years since the captives had come back from Babylon. And so 90 years later, your grandfather and your, your father had been living in this house, and now you were living it with your family, and you were going to pass it along to your children. You were well-established. You'd settled in. It wasn't a temporary kind of living situation. You were, you were there. You are living in the house your father and your grandfather lived in. They were comfortable living there. So the city of Jerusalem was empty at this point, but historically, Jerusalem was no ordinary city. It was special. Throughout the history 
of the Israelite nation. Before the kingdom was divided, it was the capital city of the United Nation of Israel. And even after the kingdom split, Jerusalem stayed and remained as the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. And more importantly, Jerusalem was the city of God. God had chosen it, God had named it, and God dwelt there. And we see that in, in several Old Testament references. First Chronicles 23 and verse 25 says, For David said, The Lord, the God of Israel, has given rest to his people, and he dwells in Jerusalem forever. God dwells in Jerusalem forever. David recognized that. Second Chronicles 6, 5 and 6, this is God speaking. He says, God says, Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. And I chose no man as prince over my people Israel, but I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there. And I've chosen David to be over my people Israel. God chose the city of Jerusalem. It was special. Jesus called Jerusalem the city of the great king. And in Matthew 5, 34 and 35, where he's telling people not to take an oath, he says, don't take oaths, don't, don't do that. Don't take an oath by heaven or by the throne of God or by earth or its footstool. Don't take an oath by Jerusalem. It's the city of the great king. And Jerusalem was a, a display of God's glory. We see that in Psalm 48, verse 1 and 2, where it says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. Talking about Jerusalem. How do I know? Because it mentions Mount Zion in the next verse. It says, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Mount Zion being the hill where part of the city itself was located. It's the city of the great king. And so Nehemiah knew this. He knew that Jerusalem was God's chosen city. God had chosen to dwell there. And he knew that in order to restore God's glory, in order to bring the people back into fellowship with God in Jerusalem in a major way, the city needed more than a temple and a wall. It needed people. And so Nehemiah decided to get people to move into the city to clean it up, to rebuild the houses, to live there, to tend the gardens, to take care of the temple, to have a community together in the city of Jerusalem, the city of the great king. Because to restore glory to the city of Jerusalem was in part to restore glory to God. And so what did Nehemiah do? Well, that's where we pick up what we're going to cover this morning in Nehemiah chapter 11. Now, I'm supposed to cover verse 1 all the way through, I think, chapter 12 but I think I'm just going to cover two verses instead. Uh, so let's look at Nehemiah 11, verses 1 and 2. So the city is empty. The walls are up, the temple is up, but people are living out in the country. It says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. Now you think to yourself, wait a minute, I thought you said they weren't living in Jerusalem. The better translation of that is in the NIV where it says, settle in. This is an action that took place. The leaders moved into Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And so they cast lots for ten percent of the people to move back into the city. And then finally it says, and the, and the people blessed all the men 
who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So the leaders decided to repopulate the city. They decided to move 10% of the people, that is 5,000 men and their families, into the city of Jerusalem to live there. So how did this happen? Well, it's clear from the text that there were three groups of people and they moved in three different ways. The three groups of people were the leaders, the volunteers, and what I call the draftees, those who were drafted. And they moved in in different ways. The leaders led the way, the volunteers followed gladly, and the draftees got picked and went. So let's just look at those just for a second individually. The leaders led the way. That's what leaders do. That's the definition of a leader. If you're leading, someone's following. Leaders should lead well. They didn't sit back and say, hey, I want 10% of you to move into the city of Jerusalem and then sit back and wait for the results. No, they led by example. They left their houses, they moved into the city first. And that's what good leaders should do. They should lead well. Others will imitate them. The second group is the volunteers. These are the people that stepped up and followed gladly. They heard the story. They got the vision. They got behind it. They got excited. They said, I'm ready. Pick me. I'm going. I don't care if I get drafted or not. I'm in. And they followed. Ready and willing to go. The third group were the draftees. They didn't lead, they didn't volunteer, they were chosen by lot. Now the word lot appears in our Bibles. It's an Old Testament concept. It was used to make important decisions. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how it works, but it's probably very similar to putting all of your names in a hat and picking them out at random. And because it's governed by chance, quote-unquote, by chance, and because God is sovereign, the people believed that it was God's will whatever it was that came out of the lottery. That it was the will of God. And so the third group, the draftees, were chosen by lot. So what did they do? Well, it doesn't say some of them quit the church and went somewhere else. It doesn't say some of them refused to go. It doesn't say some of them put their houses on the market but weren't really very serious about selling them. It just says they went. They obeyed their leaders and they went. And then beginning in verse 4 of chapter 11, you'll see a long, long list of names. Now, I'm not going to read that this morning. I'll read a portion of it. What follows is a list of 23 people, 23 men, who were either leaders or volunteers. Guys who stepped up and said, we're going to go. 23 of these guys. They were singled out and mentioned and they were commended for their commitment. Now you say, well, looking over this by sight, it looks like a lot more names than 23. And that's because of the 23 men, uh, the writer of Nehemiah in this, in this section also records their fathers, their grandfathers, and their great-grandfathers. And so you wind up with three or four times as many names as 23. But I'm going to read the list to you, and you can scan through it and pick them out. These are the 23 guys that got commended for their commitment to the Lord. It was Ethiah, 
Messiah, Salu, Joel, Judah, Judiah, Jachin, Sariah, Adiah, Amaziah, Zabdiel, Shemaiah, Shebathiah, Josabad, Mataniah, Bakbukiah, Abda, Akab, Talman, Ziha, Gishba, Uzi, and Petahiah. Now, I mention those guys' names not to demonstrate that I'm able to pronounce them by speaking fast and loud. They're specifically commended in our Bibles for their commitment to the call. And so they're worth repeating. These guys stepped up, either led or volunteered, and said, we're going. And Nehemiah put their names in here so we could read them today and say, yeah, those guys got it. They did a radical thing. They moved out of their grandfather's, great-grandfather's, father's house in the countryside and moved into the city. So who were these guys? Well, they were leaders, they were priests, they were Levites, they were gatekeepers, and they were just normal guys. There were two normal guys from Judah, two, three from Benjamin. There were six priests, eight Levites, two gatekeepers, and two temple servants. Twenty-three of them. Now, I want to stop there for just a second and go back to where we started this morning. I told you we were calling some of you to sell your house and move downtown Houston. Some of you giggled and thought I was joking. I was joking. I was using it as an example to make a point. But, is it so crazy to think that I wouldn't stand up here and do that? Is it so crazy to think that your elders would stand up in front of you and say, look, here's something that we ought to get behind, let's go do it. No, it's not crazy. It's not crazy at all. It's exactly what God has called elders to do. Next week I may come back and do that. But do you remember how you felt when I was explaining it? Your emotions were probably somewhere along this continuum. From way over here, the people that might have thought, ooh, this is exciting. I can get excited about this. Or you might have been over here in this camp called, I'm just, well, that's curious. I, I need to find out more information. Or you might have been confused, right? You might have been over here being a little apprehensive. You might have been over here being maybe even a little bit offended. And some of you may have been angry, particularly if you were fooled into thinking I was serious about it. And those of you who were not fooled because you know me well enough that I make a lot of jokes giggled, I understand it. But let me say this. Nehemiah asked his congregation of 50,000 people to do exactly what I asked you to do 15 minutes ago. Exactly. He asked them to sell their houses in the suburbs to go into the inner city, to take a rubble house, a ruined home, and repair it or rebuild it, and to move your family and your children and maybe your parents and your grandparents if they were living with you, and your dogs and your furniture, and go. And they did. 5,000 of them went 23 of them got commended for stepping up and leading. They went. 
And what did it require? Well, it required submission and obedience, first of all. Submission and obedience. These people understood what it meant to follow the direction of the elders. They understood the call to submit to God-appointed leaders. Just a reminder, as a side note, we're called to that also. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 is very clear. It says, speaking to all of us, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. What else did it require? Well, it required some self-denial. They had to leave the comfort of their suburban homes and accept a lot of inconvenience. It also required risk-taking. There was some danger involved here. The city walls were up, sure, but the first people to move back in were going to be easy targets because while the gates uh, were closed, there were still very few people inside the city itself, and so it was dangerous, particularly those who went first. It also required them to make a commitment. If you said you're going, you better go. None of this, I'll give it a shot, you got to go. And then they had to reorder their priorities and their values. They had to put God's glory ahead of their comfort and their convenience and their desires and their preferences. So I have a question. Would you do it? Take it out of the theoretical for just a minute and put it into reality. What if we stood up here and gave that exact speech? We'd probably spend a little bit more time explaining the philosophy, how we came to that decision. But at the end of the day, you'd still be faced with the same question. Would you do it? Would you sell your house and move downtown Houston for God's glory? The fact is, for many of us, we prefer our own comfort, our own wealth, our own neighborhoods, our own ease, our own safety, our own pleasures, desires, hopes, wishes, Preferences, call it what you like. I'm guilty of the same thing. The fact is that we want to do what we want to do. It's difficult for us to think about sacrificing those things for the glory of God or for the good of other people. But God will sometimes ask us to do that. God will sometimes ask us to do things for his glory that may not be directly aligned with our desires and our pleasures and our preferences. Now, this is a consistent pattern with God. He asks us to put his glory first and put other stuff second. And... He often asks people to do things which are not normal, but extraordinary. Sometimes things that are radical. Sometimes things that look impossible or hopeless or foolish. And our Bible is full of people who responded to that call. God called Noah to build an ark, and it wasn't even raining. God called Abraham to leave his home, and go to this thing he called the promised land, even though he didn't know where he was going or what he would do when he got there. But he went. God called Moses to give up his life as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, 
living in the palace, having it made. To do what? To lead a bunch of Israelite slaves out of Egypt. The disciples left their businesses, their family businesses, whether they were doctors or tax collectors or fishermen, they just quit their jobs and followed Jesus. They didn't think twice. They just tossed their nets in the boat and said, I'm in, let's go. Paul left his life as a chief leader in the synagogue, as a Pharisee, to go follow Jesus. Paul was all in. He was a no-compromises kind of guy. He gave up everything he had for Jesus, and Paul had a lot. Paul describes what he had in Philippians 3, 5 through 8. Paul says, Me, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. What's his point? I was a blue blood. I grew up in the right family. Both my mother and my father were Hebrews. I was taught by some of the best teachers. I became a Pharisee, a leader of the church, well-respected in my community. I love the church so much that I went out and I persecuted this, this cult thing, this Jesus thing. Because in my view, it was totally contrary to everything that was in my Bible totally contrary to the Jewish faith. And so I didn't sit on the sidelines and complain about it. I didn't, I didn't send emails to the leaders and say, you guys go fix that. No, I got out of my chair and I went around and I persecuted it. I dragged some of them off to jail and I ordered that some of them be put to death. I was zealous. I was zealous for God. I was mistaken, but I was zealous for God. And when he gave all that up and followed Jesus, do you, do you think he left a little bit behind? Yeah, he left a lot behind. I can guarantee you that his mother and father disowned him. His brothers and sisters never spoke to him again. He left everything he had in the Jewish synagogue and the position he had and his, his fame and his, uh, his, his position in the community. He left it all behind and he went and followed this Jesus guy. In Philippians, he says, I'm all in. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So... All these people, Noah, Abraham, Moses, the disciples, Paul, what do they have in common? Well, first of all, they were all sinners. They all sinned and fell short of the glory of God. They all answered God's call and went and did something radical for God's glory, not for personal gain. They all made extraordinary commitments. They were all honored in our Bibles and they were all blessed by God. And why did they do what they did? Because God calls us to a higher level of commitment. He just does. Every now and then we need to remind ourselves of that. Christians are not supposed to be passive or half-hearted or lukewarm. We as Christians are called to be all in. Paul says so in Romans 12. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, you, brothers, I'm appealing to you, Paul says, by the mercies of God, to do what? To present your bodies as living sacrifices. Be all in. Holy and acceptable to God. That's your spiritual worship. Offering yourself as a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. 
Don't look like all your neighbors. Be different. Be transformed. Be changed. By the renewal of your mind, by testing, you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we're called to extraordinary things, to be living sacrifices. For what purpose? Well, for God's glory, for God's will, to be distinctly different. Jesus does the same thing. Hundreds of references in the New Testament. Just to pick one, Mark 8, 34, Jesus called to him the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself means you, you take all the stuff you in your life that you enjoy, and you set it aside for the purpose of being committed to follow Jesus. And it's radical stuff. And the people in Jerusalem are a proud example of what happens when people do radical things for God's glory. And so we're left here this morning. Do we have what it takes to be radical? Do you have what it takes to be radical? Do I have what it takes to be radical? There have been times in my life when God has called me to do some things to step up my commitment. Now, I can tell you that God never spoke directly to me. But he used the Holy Spirit to speak in my heart, and he gave me a feeling of uneasiness and a restlessness that wouldn't go away. And he put people around me who encouraged me to do things. And he put opportunities right in front of me and said, here, do this. Not audibly, but you know what I'm talking about. And on the times when I've answered those calls, I have been blessed. A few times I think God has been glorified. And I know that I have matured. And in this process we call sanctification, where you trust in Jesus and you spend the rest of your life becoming more and more like Jesus, those are the times when I took leaps of progress in becoming more like Jesus. And many of you have experienced the same thing. Many of you have been challenged, and many of you have faced things in your life where you need to step out and make a major commitment, or maybe just a minor commitment. And when you do that, you know you've been blessed. And it's scary, and it's difficult, and you're not sure what's going on. But it's all good. Now, I don't know what's going on in your life right now. I can't take a poll or zero in. I know some of you very well. And I know that many of you are going through those kinds of experiences where God is calling you to do something different. God's calling you to step up. Sometimes it's something big and sometimes it's something little. Sometimes it's radical and sometimes it's not. Things that are radical for me might not be radical for you. Things that are radical for you might not be radical for me. We all have our own commitments. We all have our own comfort level. And God wants to break those down. He wants us to move out of those. Maybe you're in a position now where God's asking you to get out of your comfort zone and do something distinctly different, something extraordinary. Like maybe you want us to sell your house and move for God's glory. Maybe he wants to quit your job and get into some sort of a ministry. Maybe he wants you to become a foster parent or adopt a child who's a needy child to do something for your society. Maybe he wants you to volunteer for a charitable organization. That may not sound radical to you, but it sounds radical to some people. 
He may want you to walk across the street or down the hall and tell somebody about Jesus. He may want you to start teaching a Sunday school class or start a Bible study in your neighborhood with some women who are non-Christians. He may want you to reconcile a broken relationship with a family member, a friend, or perhaps a spouse. He may want you to confess a major sin that you have in your life that just keeps coming back. He wants you to get rid of it. Or he may want you to sell your boat or your lake house and give all the money to God. All of it. Or he may want you to go in the seminary. It could be anything. And sometimes it's totally clear what we should do and why, and sometimes it's not. But you know you should do it anyway, and so you jump off not knowing what the future holds. But I can tell you that in my experience and the experience of others, that if you make yourself available to God, he will provide opportunities for you to do radical things. And the only limit to how radical they are is how large your commitment is to do them. Jesus died on the cross. That was radical. And if you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I think he's calling us to do radical things too. Our prayer as elders and staff and ministry leaders here at Tumble Bible Church is that we seriously take the challenge, become more committed to radical things. Me first. Leaders lead. So my prayer this morning will be that we do radical things for God's glory, for God's purposes. And on that note, I'm going to pray. Lord God, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you that he became a man. He stepped out of heaven to come to earth to teach us something and to save us. And the radical thing he did on the cross by allowing those men to nail his hands and feet to the cross and to die for our sins, Lord God, is no small thing. Lord, you called us to a commitment. You called us to be radical. You called us to be to live our lives for your honor and for your glory. And so I pray this morning, as I often do for myself and for others, me first, Lord God, that you would change our hearts, that you would speak to us, each of us individually in our own little space, wherever that may be, that you might call us to a higher level of commitment, that you may call us to do radical, extraordinary things for you, not for us, and that we'd be smart enough, Lord God, to have an eternal perspective knowing all the stuff around us will not always be here, but you will. And the things we do for your honor and for your glory will shine forever. Just as the 23 men in EMI's day stepped up and moved their houses and got named in your book of life, we thank you for those men and we thank you for the example they set for us almost 3,000 years later. We pray, Lord God, that your spirit would move among us in our hearts. Mind first, Lord God, that we might be all in, fully devoted followers of you and your son, Jesus. And that when you call us, Lord God, to, to do radical, extraordinary things, that we would step up and say, yeah, I'm ready to go. Pick me. Lord God, we pray all this in the powerful and precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.